Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the architecture and design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for disruption and radically changing the architecture industry through tech-first innovation. With this podcast, I am hoping to improve the industry that I am so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work with their clients and in turn, how their clients view us. It's my goal to showcase all of these experiences, good and bad. Was it the architect or the client or somewhere in between? Through shared experiences, stories, and projects, my hope is that we can improve our profession. I'm excited to have Jan de Rochefort as my guest here on The Anti-Architect. Jan is a New York-based restaurateur, husband, father of two boys, author, and founder and CEO of Bocaria Restaurants. Born and raised in France, Jan's long-standing connection to Spain and its cuisine stems from years spent living in Barcelona and exploring the local food markets. Jan later moved to New York City to work as a corporate marketing executive before ultimately deciding to quit his day job and pursue the opportunity to create something significant. He embraced his entrepreneurial spirit, love affair with Spain, and passion for design in 2006 when he opened Bocaria's flagship restaurant in New York City's Flatiron neighborhood. Twelve years later, Bocaria has become an institution with seven locations spread throughout Chicago, Washington, D.C., Manhattan, and soon-to-be Nashville. Jan is also a client and a friend. Jan, thank you for agreeing to be here on, on the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so our audience would love to uh, get to know you better. Um, can you tell us a little bit about growing up in France? Sure. I grew up in Paris until I was 12. Uh, my parents worked together. They had an advertising agency. And um, we decided, they decided, we didn't decide, I wasn't deciding much in those days. Uh, I was, they decided to move to the U.S. because they were working with the U.S. and Latin America and decided to open an office in Miami. So um, that was a pretty dramatic move. Uh, went from um, living in, in Paris, which was all that I'd, I'd ever known, um, to Key Biscayne, Miami. Uh, there were parts of it that were amazing because going from living in an apartment in Paris to <laughs> sure. having a pool outside of your uh, bedroom door was pretty awesome. Uh, there was also a lot of culture shock, but uh, overall, it was a great experience. Wow, that's great. And uh, and that connection back to Spain, you know, what ultimately, you know, how, how does all, all of that kind of come together? Yeah, so my father lived in Spain uh, before before moving to Paris. I uh, lived in, in Madrid and um, they also had offices in Madrid and Barcelona. And uh, my father was a an avid sailor, and we would spend a month every summer. This is you know back in the seventies when um, still in in France you took the entire month of August off. So they shut down. This is probably something that's hard for you to fathom as a business owner. That's for sure. They would <laughs> shut down the agency for August because nothing was going on anyway. And we would fly down to Barcelona, stock up the boat, and sail for a month. So I spent a lot of time in, in Barcelona uh, as a kid in the Baleares Islands and spent some time in, in Madrid as well. Okay. And so where did this fascination with sort of the Spanish food 
come come but on, really out. so i i spent time in in spain before I was 12 with my parents. And then I went back and spent a senior year of high school. I sort of escaped the boarding school that uh, they had sent me to in Massachusetts to spend my senior year of high school in Barcelona, which was a hell of a lot more fun. Yeah, I'm sure. And then, and then I went back again when I was doing my MBA and spent six months working in Madrid. And I spent a lot of time. I, I love tapas bars. Uh, I thought they had like this amazing vibe. And that no one had really brought that to life in, in New York. Uh, the places that were Spanish then um, either had like an amazing vibe and pretty crappy food. They were sort of divey places, right. uh, divey tapas bars, or, or it was the opposite, right? And there was no place that really sort of brought the experience to life, um, which is this experience of just walking in and a very casual it, – it, blends the fluidity of the bar and the conviviality of the table, right? Something mm -hmm. different happens when you're breaking bread, literally. Right. And um, you know, places like Bar Pinocho or in, in Barcelona or Jose Luis in Madrid. And I wanted to bring that to life here. Wow. That's amazing. Um, and so ultimately, you know, you, you graduated from Georgetown, um, correct? Somehow, yes. <laughs> uh, and then you went on and 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 got a master's degree, I believe, right? Yes, I did. I, okay. I went. I spent two years in South so Carolina. What, what was the plan after you graduated from from Georgetown? And 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 what, what did you you know what was your career path at that point? Um, I'm afraid to say there wasn't much of a plan, and I hope my kids never listen to this podcast <laughs> or at least this section of it. Uh, there wasn't much of a plan. I spent some time working for a small consulting firm. Um, then I was an interpreter for the State Department uh, for about a year. And I going to business school was a way for me to sort of reset my career. Uh, after that, the plan was to be a, you know international marketing executive. Uh, by now, I should have been you know president of L'Oreal in some country. Um, but that, thankfully, didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I took a side path. So you you did go on to be the marketing director at L'Oreal. Yes, I was I was marketing director of shampoos, which sounds ridiculous to me now, but that was my life. How long How long did you did you last there? I was I was there for I think about three years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then anywhere else after that, or I was I was at Ally Demec as global marketing director of Sousa Tequila. For a year and a half. Okay. Uh, that which, makes which, a little more sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sounds like a lot more fun than it actually was. Uh, it was still sort of, you know, peddling products as opposed to creating experiences, which I realized after a while was what I really wanted to do. Got it. Okay. And then so from there, you know, you you decide, okay, I, I have this idea for a restaurant. How does that come to be? What was the what was the planning involved? Yeah, that's in that? that's not actually how it happened. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that that would make it sound like there was much more of a thought thought out <laughs> plan. Um, what what happened was that with the few friends we wanted to open a bar. And it was the sort of conversation that is normally quickly forgotten by saner individuals and myself. Um, they forgot about it. I decided to keep going. And the bar project morphed into a restaurant project. And the side gig morphed into a, a full-time gig when I decided to quit my job because I was more interested in um, building my own business and creating experiences than I was in... Uh, doing strategic planning for a consumer goods business. Yeah, understood. Did you ever yeah. want to be a chef along these lines? No. Nope. No? So nope. no, no, no desire from any no, of that? No. Okay. Well, not, no, no desire because no capacity, really. <laughs> so, 
as anybody who's been to my house for dinner will tell you, and as my wife will tell you, whenever um, she has the misfortune of having to eat my cooking. Wow. Okay. That, <laughs> I love it. Um, so, so prior to Bocaria, you own Saba Restaurant, is that correct? Suba. Suba? Okay. Yes. Okay. On the Lower East Side. So, was that the first restaurant that bar? That was the first restaurant. Okay. And so, how, how did that go and in, in general? So it was around for a long time. It, it was around for a while. Okay. Um, it, how did it go? It was um, painful initially. Um, it was my first foray into the restaurant business, and, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I had a business partner at the time who was a former bar operator, and um, we opened with a... I don't know if you ever went to Suba, but it was this sort of incredible um, vision uh, that was the, actually the genesis of the project was an architect, oddly enough. Okay. Uh, Andre Kukowski. Okay. And he had this vision of creating a floating island dining room in the basement of a tenement building in Lower East Side okay. that was inspired by the Roman cisterns in Istanbul. Wow. Um, we found it completely serendipitously through the owner of the bar next door and um, decided to pick up the project where the former owners had left off. Okay. Um, built it, opened it. Uh, we were under construction when 9-11 hit. Uh, I was actually, I remember I was on my way into the office because I was still working for Allied Demac while trying to get this business off the ground. I was driving into the office and my biggest problem was how can I call more investors to get money to finish the project. Okay. Um, and then, you know, the, the world changed. But we eventually got it open. Okay. And, uh, and did you have a say in the design as it was going? Yes. Okay. Ish. <laughs> Ish. So did that architect have, you know, you, you said it was his original vision? It was his original vision. For yes. the actual restaurant? For the, or? For the space, for not the, space, the food not the concept. Food. Okay, got yeah, it. The, the, okay. The, he was agnostic about the, the, the food. Got it. Okay. And so when you say you had a say-ish, what does that mean? He had very strong opinions okay. about it because it was his baby originally. Um, he ended up working with us for a very low fee. And so part of <laughs> he felt that part of his compensation was actually to have a very strong say okay. in the his design of the restaurant. His vision could be seen along the way. Absolutely. Okay. okay. What ultimately did you learn from that, that experience at Suba? With regard to working with an architect? Yeah, well, with regards to working with an architect, but also just in general in business, that ultimately leads you to start Bocaria. Well, I think one important lesson was the importance of the cohesiveness of the concept and the fit between the concept and the space. Okay. Um, that did not exist at Suba. The two were entirely disconnected. Okay. And I... We, we managed to stay in business for a while through, I think, sheer force of will. Um, <laughs> but it was a far from an effortless process. And I think that, you know, the space and the food really didn't have anything to do with each other. Okay. And I think that, to me, one of the key lessons is there has to be a very tight integration between every element of the restaurants, including, obviously, the space, the design, the seating, the layout, every single aspect, and the concept for it to, to click and to make sense intuitively, uh, nothing should be out of place. And mm -hmm. when you have elements that, that don't sync up with the concept, they feel out of place. Yeah. Do, do you think that your average diner understands that? 
I, I don't think they understand that consciously, but mm -hmm. I think they feel it. They feel it. Sure. Sure. I, I would totally agree. So, so how does the opening of the first Bocaria go down? How does that ultimately happen? So drawing lessons from Suba, I realized that we needed something that was a much stronger concept than, than Suba was. I, as I said, spent a lot of time in Spain, loved tapas bars and wanted to bring that to life. And I think that part of the success of Bocaria is the amount of, of passion and work that went into sort of breaking down the, the different elements of a tapas bar and thinking about how to recreate the vibe and the quality of the experience in a way that works in New York City. So the architects of the, the first book, Rhea, um, Meyer Davis and I, um, Will Meyer and uh, Gray Davis, actually went to Barcelona and spent three days oh, wow. walking around Barcelona, looking at a bunch of tapas bars and breaking down the different elements so that we could identify what we wanted to sort of you know, put back together, what could work in New York, what what would not work in New York and how to compensate for that. Wow. wow. I didn't know you worked with Meyer Davis. That's great. Yeah. So we, we do some work with them as well. So. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, some of the hospitality I actually work. ran into um, Will completely by chance about four months ago. I was sitting in the diner that's next to the Soho Grand and I there was probably two tables, myself and, and another couple, and Will walks in. <laughs> They do. They do beautiful work. They do. So, so you're Very touring talented. with them, and and how, you know, so a little bit off on a tangent for me on this. So, so because ultimately, I want to, you know, I'm interested in how you work with architects and how you work with designers. Um, so you're touring through through Spain, and you're looking at different tapas bars. What's their process in terms of, you know? breaking down those spaces and then how do they how do they present the ideas to you ultimately to translate into that original Bocaria restaurant? I, mean, I think that was a very collaborative process and it's kind of interesting looking back that you know they chose to spend that much time. I, I, I don't think that I've had that much of a principal's time and ear since it was it was God what was it 20 years ago? Yeah. God. Yeah, no, 15 years ago. And it, really, they were they were starting out. They didn't have that much work that had been published then. Okay. And so they were willing to invest the time um, to make this a really successful project. So the two, of, the three of us traveled to Barcelona and spent three days there. And what we did is we just broke down every element, the, the, the menus. How was the, men, how was the menu presented? The, um, what's the experience walking in, the food on the bar when you walk in, the fact that people are standing, um, the, the, types of, the types of materials, the, the quantity and quality of interaction between servers, bartenders, and, and guests. So, you know, broke down all of that and then said, okay, what, what are the sine qua non identifiers of a tapas bar? And how do we how do we recreate those right. in in New York? So wow. it, that was a very collaborative process. That's wonderful. That's collaborative doesn't mean smooth, by the way. <laughs> I don't want to disabuse anybody of that notion. <laughs> so so you know you you always speak very eloquently about design. Where does this passion for design and architecture come from? Is there a, a education along the way, or is it just observational? How how did you get to be this in, intuitive about how design works? Um. 
there was definitely no education. Um, I think I grew up, um, my, my father really liked design and I grew up in an environment that was aesthetically interesting with, you know, the type of furniture that we had, the apartments that we lived in, the, and, um, it, it matters to me. I, I, I care about it. The mm-hmm. way things look matters to me on an almost OCD level. Yeah. And so it, it's hard not to invest time and energy in making decisions about something that matters to you. Right. I agree. I agree. But you do, and, and just in knowing and working with you, you know, you do have a very keen sense of design. And I think what make what separates you from a lot of our clients is you talk a lot about the feeling, the experience of it, um, rather than just the materiality or the layout or anything like that. It really talks to you. You talk about that feel and what is someone going to feel? What are their emotions mm-hmm. going to be? And then I think for your brand, it carries through to your food. And as you said, the menus and every bit of that experience, even, you know, my experience with you in some of the the restaurants is you know the lighting is extremely important to you you know you go around and you tweak that lighting ever ever so little here and there and uh you know watching you interact with the staff there about why are these lights on so bright and and some of some of my managers joke that they they realize that they finally clicked and they've made it when i can when i walk into their (laughs) restaurant and i don't touch the lights (laughs) But it makes a huge difference, right? I mean, it the does. lighting is the lighting is everything in it, and it you get that you get that mood. Yeah, I, re- I remember telling um, Will and, and Gray when we designed the first Book Rear restaurant that I wanted it absolutely wanted it to work for for lunch and dinner. And I remember telling them that I wanted to build the restaurant for lunch, but light it for dinner. Wow! Because you can you can light for dinner, but if it's built for dinner, you can't light for lunch. <laughs> Exactly. So, um, so as far as the, you know, did, did the first location of Boca Ria meet your vision in terms of the, you know, the, the goals that you set out for yourself? It, it did. It did. I think that was a remarkable experience, a remarkable instance of a first collaboration between an architect and a client um, really, really nailing it. Okay. And I think that has informed the way I think about the collaboration between an architect and and the client. Um, it was it was a tough process, uh, but what it produced was a was a great result. And and I saw it instantly. It just everything clicked and made made sense. It did deliver the impact, the feeling that I wanted it to. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I totally agree. Having been there uh, a bunch, um, how did you end up choosing Meyer Davis? I mean, what was the what was that original process like? So I I can't remember exactly why I chose them, but I, I looked at I talked to a number of architects, looked at their work, and I think that there was a minimum threshold of my liking their work but then the so that was the um the 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 price of entry if you will Mm -hmm. but then what won the order was the extent to which they were willing to commit themselves to to getting it right and how much they bought into the process and uh, to to the uh, to the concept and and the the project and and they delivered on that yeah yeah for sure wow so at this point, you know, you, you have you have a proven concept, um, you know, you have a real brand now and you're thinking about expanding. Right. Um, you know, as the restaurants have gotten larger, um, 
How do you feel about that process? And how have you gone about choosing, you know, the next round of architects to, to ultimately work with uh, as you've expanded? I think that so the two principles I mentioned earlier are still true. Right? I think that and, and part of the reason for that is in my mind, the A, I, I care very much about design. I care about it because I think that it makes a difference in the success of the business. Mm -hmm. But I have to admit that I care about it more than just because it makes a difference in the success of the business. There, there are other aspects of the business that also make a difference that I don't spend as much time on right. because it doesn't, they don't resonate with me the same way. So I think that the, the collaboration with the architect is really critical. I come to an architect with a concept and a vision that they don't have, but I need them yeah. to bring a level of skill and talent and experience that I don't have. And so there's a, it's sort of like two gears meshing together, if you will, um, to, to function properly. We need to get to the point where I trust that they understand my vision. And in turn, I need to trust that they can take care of the details and really bring it together. And I'm willing to go along with things that even sometimes when I don't see them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so as what was the next, you know, group of restaurants after Flatiron? Where did you? So go there to were next? two other restaurants that I did with with uh, Meyer Davis or okay. people who'd worked with Meyer Davis previously, and then um, the next architect that I worked with was Ali Reza Razavi, who designed a restaurant at 40th Street and uh, the Chicago restaurant. Right. I had known Ali Reza for 20 years. Um, Ali Reza is a very talented and also a very cerebral architect. Mm -hmm. uh, everything has to have a conceptual reason. Reminds me of that joke from Ronald Reagan, right, about economists. It's like the, the only people who will ask, say it works in practice, but how does it work in theory? Right. Ali Reza needs <laughs> things to work in theory. Um, but because of that relationship, I knew that he would invest the time necessary and to, to get a great result. Um, I took a chance because he had never designed a restaurant wow. and I entrusted him with a 5,400 square foot restaurant, which at the time was our biggest restaurant, yeah. um, just steps off of Times Square. Uh, and it took, um, it took a lot of meetings and a lot of time together um, to work through ideas that he might have thought were great or I might have thought were great, but that one of us con convinced the other didn't work. <laughs> Um, and then, um, I think, you know, we ended up with, I think a pretty amazing restaurant that was nominated for James Beard award. Yeah. And, um, and then went on to do the, our second collaboration in Chicago. In Chicago. Okay. And then who ultimately worked on the DC restaurant? That was Meyer Davis as well. Oh, that was. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I love the architecture profession. There are so many wonderful people. So many interesting, innovative, and smart folks. And we get access to people that most never even have an opportunity to meet in person. I have worked with Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, John Foley, founder of Peloton, and many more legends. There is another aspect of architects that fascinates me. How do clients view us? How do they work with us? Those that work with architects either have a wonderful experience or a pretty bad one. Let's continue to listen to the lessons they've learned. And now back to the episode. 
So then, you know, I love asking kind of these kind of questions where we take a little bit of more of a critical look at kind of working with the architects. Sure. So, um, you know, in the end, if you look at sort of all of the architects that, that you've worked with thus far, um, do you think they've been good listeners? Um, you know, <laughs> did you and, and the architect talk about budget and, you know, how, 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 how did that process go? Yeah, the, the good listener question is is a really good one. Um, I think that all, all jokes aside, I think that listening and and the dialogue is is probably the most critical part yeah. of the of the process. And and I think that they have been that they have been good listeners. Um, it takes. I think one of the biggest hurdles to successful collaboration is the amount of time that it takes to get to know each other. Yeah. And it can't be just a few meetings. Uh, I think both parties have to be willing to invest, you know, dinners out and tours of markets and tours of different restaurants to understand what resonates with the clients um, to to be able to create in something that matches the vision. Yeah, and I would agree. I think in in our working relationship, you know, we've spent time together now, and, yeah. and we've gone to you know various restaurants of yours in Chicago, and obviously in New York City, and even for someone like me and the people here that work on your projects, knowing you know what are the issues that you you know you really gravitate towards, like the lighting, right? right. How important that is, or how you know you want a certain thing to light up, but you don't want to be able to see the source of light, and how do you actually power that, and how do we keep that on budget? You know, those I agree are things that you have to know, get to know you. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I you know, I, I wish that we had that time with a lot of our clients. A lot of times we're just thrown into, you know, one or two meetings and go. You know, now you've right. got to design all of this space for them and, and you never really understand what their sensibilities are. So it's been great, you know, getting to know you during that process. So as far as budgets go and schedules go, did, did the, are the people that you've worked with, have they been able to kind of stick to that or has it gone haywire and you know, ourselves think, included? <laughs> yeah, I think that um, the budget is an interesting question. In my experience, architects don't sufficiently engage with budget questions until we get the first round of bids from the GC. And um, one of the things that I think would make architectural firms stronger, the ones that I've worked with, would be to have somebody with GC experience in-house. Yeah. So we can have a GC do pre-construction services, but they're still an external member of the team. They're hoping to get the bid. There's a different dynamic at play. And I think that engaging with decisions that have budgetary implications earlier on and having some idea of, of a working budget would make it stronger. Generally, it doesn't come in mm -hmm. until the bids are too high and we need to value engineer it. Uh, and, you know, maybe that approach is, is, is defensible, but I think it would be stronger for that to happen earlier. In terms of the schedule, it that rarely comes into play because the architects, in my experience, haven't managed this schedule for us. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. A lot of times I feel like the architect will, and I agree on the budget side. I think if that was one thing that we would have here is to have someone that could really speak to what true costs are and then ultimately labor costs included, right? Um, you know, we lean on contractors, we lean on project management firms, but it's very difficult to ultimately, yes. you know, you know, keep that uh, keep that consistent or correct ultimately in the end. 
Um, and then, yeah, as far as schedule goes, I feel like a lot of times we overpromise on a schedule. We have sort of this idealistic view of the schedule. Um, but there are so many factors that ultimately play they into really it that, you know, and, and especially these days with, with COVID. So, um, you know, you and I met through a, a mutual business connection and, and uh, we've, we've gotten to know each other. And, um, you know, before we started designing f with you, um, you know, it was really the technology that brought us together. So, you know, when you and I had met, we had had a few lunches and I was telling you about the virtual reality that we do and sort of the process that we have. And, you know, it's to your credit that, you know, you're the one that said, hey, Christian, we would love to to, I think we could use your software and experience our kitchen mm -hmm. before it's even built. And that, frankly, set us down on a path to where we are now. That was many years ago at this point. Uh, and we've essentially built technology around, you know, your suggestion initially in the beginning. And so obviously, I want to thank you for that. Um, You're welcome. But I, hope it, I hope it works. Now, now I feel a sense of responsibility. It, it definitely works. So, so I, I guess from your perspective, how has that helped, you know, in even the initial versions when we had the chef in to kind of work the line and then down the line as we've as we've worked through uh, several projects together? I think it's helped in ways that I hadn't expected and the ways that I had hoped for. I, I don't think we've yet seen the full benefit. So. Where it's helped is in making design decisions in real time and in enhancing the collaboration. I remember working on like an outdoor space with Michael mm -hmm. and the ability to, it wasn't so much, I hope that the VR aspect would be significant. And I think it still could be, I, I don't think we've seen it play out completely yet. But what I have seen is the ability to, Ren create three-dimensional renderings in real time and change them and play with them. We had, we spent an hour and that was probably one of the best hours I spent with Narctech because we were able to not just play with ideas, but really get a sense of how they would, how they would be realized. Yeah. Um, and that I, I had not experienced yet because it's very hard for, as a non-architect, to visualize things when you're just drawing them in two dimensions. Sure, sure. Right. And all of a sudden here I was able to to visualize them and provide feedback and we were able to play with different ideas and iterate much, much faster. Right. Right. And so do you so do you think in when we, you know, take the renderings to the next level and you've got, you know, you're able to do a walkthrough, do you think that's a value to you? I, I think there's huge value. I won't know how much value there is until we've gone through a full cycle Got it. of designing this way, building the restaurant, and then walking through the built restaurants and seeing to what extent we captured, the built, we captured it or right, not. Right. So it's... Well, it's per that'll be perfect to have you back when we're when we're done with that restaurant. And, Can't wait. Uh, we can Can't go, wait on all counts. And we can go through it. That, that, that's amazing. So what other opportunities do you see for architects and technology from, from your perspective as the end user, as the, the CEO, the, the person who ultimately, you know, has to finance and build these spaces? What, what do you see technology and the need for it to improve in, in the way we work? That one I need time to think about. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem. <laughs> that one I wasn't totally I wasn't ready for. Um, not sure. Okay. 
I'm I'm not sure. I think that um I think that digging into that sort of like collaboration aspect of playing with uh, a space and being able to change things quickly in a way that the client can visualize mm -hmm. has a lot of benefits that we haven't fully seen yet. Yeah. I mean, for me, I would love to see what we do in the visualization side also connected to that budget that we talked about, right? So that when you move something, yeah. when, we, when we rearrange tables or we move banquettes, right, there's an association with cost to that. Um, and somehow being able to capture that in real time, just like the visualization side would be for me, hugely powerful. But as you said, we need that other, we need that data. That's tough. I was just, I was, I was just on a car manufacturer site yesterday, configuring a car that I may or may not buy. Um, and every option changed the price. Yeah. Right. So now they're dealing with a standard set of options. So it's a lot easier, right. but you know, if you could get to the point where you can say, well, you know, what if the ceiling were different and somehow you had even a rough estimate of cost impact and somebody was able to look at the 3D rendering or the virtual reality and say, okay, this is $100,000 more than option B and here's option B, toggle between the two, say, do you feel like that makes $100,000 worth of difference or not? Right. That would be pretty incredible. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we always talk about that manufacturing process from a car, right, that they have. But the beauty of them is they control everything. They control where they get their materials, how they put their cars together, and ultimately who builds it and how it puts together. Where well, and, and, the, and the range of options is limited. Exactly. Even if it seems like, you know, even if it's like a Porsche, it's not a Porsche, but if it were a Porsche, um, you still they have a huge range of options. It's still a finite set exactly. of options that right. they have costed ahead of time. And you just get to pick how those interact. Right. And for good or for bad in our profession, anything is an option and anything can be done with, you know, for any cost ultimately. Exactly. So, <laughs> um, so uh, just a, a couple more questions here, here for you. So um, you mentioned, um, you mentioned your love of cars. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I, I think I also have my father to blame for that. Okay. Um, so, and, uh, and something I've been able to indulge in the past few years, I was actually, I have a few classic cars and it's probably my favorite thing to do on weekends is just go on a quick drive to nowhere around the roads of the Hudson Valley. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And then um, kind of circling all back around, just uh, back to the architecture side. So, um, you know, what, what places or buildings in the world do you find compelling? So I was thinking about this earlier. There are, there are a number of places that stand out in my mind, and they're, they're very, very different. So the first one that came to mind was the Pantheon in Rome. And I think that what is incredible about that building is a the fact that it's still standing right but just the the perfection of the proportions of that building to create a space that is that big and yet feels intimate is is absolutely astounding um and there's clearly you know well there was technology but not technology the way we understand it right. then um, at another end of the range a building that or spaces where the proportions of the room aren't particularly distinctive, but the interior design is absolutely spectacular and is thought through down to every little detail is the cost hotel in Paris mm. uh, by Jacques, Jacques Garcia. Yeah. Um, Jacques Garcia is 
work can range from sublime to perhaps indifference where you know the same elements are assembled in a way that doesn't have the same integrity the cost i think it reaches its maximum expression of integrity where every single thing works together it, it's i think it's a fantastic uh, space a few others are the um i'm a big fan as you know big fan of mid-century um architecture and um, two buildings that stand out to mind that i was able to see uh, by going down to to miami during art basel were the uh, the maison des montables by jean jean prouvé mm -hmm. and the uh, maison bordelot by charlotte perriand and there, what I find remarkable is how such few elements perfectly combined in terms of proportions can create a very harmonious building when the intent was actually to create something that was cheap and easy to put together. Right. Aesthetic was not the primary driver of their design. The the form the the function was the primary driver of the design, right. and yet when you walk into those to either one of those buildings, um, everything is in the right place. Yep, agreed. Well, I think that's the the perfect uh, way to end it. I I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you. Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, it's this been, was fun. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>